0: welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are going up in a little bit of a different tangent and exploring some of the biological impacts of this infection that has driven our society to a near mass hysteria and and paranoia. So uh, we're going to be talking with Ryan Smith, who is a really clever and well-educated person in the uh, area of longevity testing. And, and he's founded a company called TrueAge, which is probably one of the best commercial testing systems out there to determine what your uh, biological age, not actually, I'm sorry, your, your, your biological age as opposed to your chronological age. So you could be like my case my, 67 my and be biologically 47. So, and it's done through a process called DNA methylation, which is, uh, I'm going to, I could expand, but probably not as well as Ryan because (laughs) this is his area of expertise. So I will let him diverge off onto it, but it's a really useful tool because you need an objective barometer, some type of standard. Otherwise you have no idea what you're doing. You think you could be doing a lot of great things for your health, like exercising the right diet and you know, doing circadian rhythm optimization, but uh, unless you have some assay to determine the cumulative impact of all the variables that enter into your life, and many of them hidden like toxins that you're exposed to, you have no idea what's going on. So it's really, powerful and relatively recent technology. We didn't have this when I was in med school. This didn't exist. We didn't even understand epigenetic aging at all. The concept was not yet discovered. So uh, it's really good that you get up to speed on this because I think it could be a powerful tool for those of you who are interested in, in advanced strategies. So with all that background, welcome. and Thank you for joining us today, Ryan.
1: Thanks so much, Dr. McCullough. I'm happy to be on and uh, definitely uh, excited to talk about aging.
0: Yeah, before, let me just, I forgot one thing where where I first met you. It was just a few weeks ago at uh, Dave Asprey's uh, biohacking event in Orlando, which I've been to a number of times before, but this was the, the best because I got to drive there from my house instead of flying across the country to Los Angeles. So um, yeah, and then you had a booth there and we talked and I was just really impressed with your depth of knowledge. So I think probably uh, the best way to start is to maybe give us a little bit of your history so people know how you got into this and you know what what um, motivated you to pursue this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so I've got a, a relatively strange uh, background, in the fact that I was a biochemistry undergrad, uh, went to medical school at the University of Kentucky, but um, you know, passed my USMLE Step One, but got to some of those clinical portions of you know year three and four, and just absolutely hated it. And so uh, what I decided to do was make a you know probably a very poor financial decision, but uh, uh, sort of dropped out, and and really at that point um, sort of created a, a compounding pharmacy called. Uh, tailor-made compounding and so that far- third, third year third year student or fourth year student i was third yeah third oh, uh, wow. well yeah. that may
0: not have been a bad financialism it may have been a really really good one because yeah. You know, you would have essentially been deep into debt and uh, been a servant, and then probably, with your commitment to integrity, would have recognized this fraud that's
1: being passed as a as a pandemic, and they probably would have taken your life away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you, you know, if I had known this this world of integrative, you know, functional preventative medicine existed in in any reasonable way, I think I probably would have continued. But at the moment, I didn't, um, and, uh, and and so you know, again, you know, sort of decided to to cut my losses a little bit, and and then. Ended up creating a compounding pharmacy that that really specialized in peptides and, and proteins and really new and innovative molecules, um, and so we we just sort of hit a niche with that um, with that company and and grew really really rapidly. We were you know the fourth fastest growing company in healthcare, um, really helping a lot of these integrative functional physicians find products to really hit you know on. Un- uh, unmet needs in their patients. And so that was a really, really exciting realm. And um, you know, over the course of that time, it was uh, definitely a learning experience in all things functional medicine. But one of the things we always kept coming to is that a lot of the molecules and products we were using were, we're still very, very new. And, and, and so we wanted to have a way to objectively gauge how they were working, uh, particularly with a lot of these physicians working in, in anti-aging or longevity-based medicine. We really wanted an objective tool to gauge how these things were affecting lifespan and health span. Um, and so that search has been gone on for a long, long time. Really, even in the 1920s, they were, they were taking someone's biological age or the age of their body by just you know taking their chronological age and adding a, a, one year for every pack per day you smoked or something of that, really oh, yeah. crude measurements. Uh, but as you mentioned, you know, this technology really took a massive step forward, really starting in 2013 and, and really towards 2018, 19, it started to be used for the first time in clinical practice. And so, um, you know, the moment the first interventional trial was published, looking at ways to reverse epigenetic aging. Um, I, I knew that this is something I absolutely wanted to get into as a way to validate the effects that a lot of these therapies are having in an objective format. So you can compare one thing to the other, um, in, in really, uh, measurable and, and reproducible ways. Ways. Um, and, and so that's when we created True Diagnostic. We created it in, really in March of 2020, right as the pandemic hit. Um, but uh, then started doing our first commercial test right around July of 2020. Um, and in that time, we've, we've uh, since that time, I should say, we've done a lot of interesting things um, with the company. We have over 30 clinical trials ongoing, uh, looking at a variety of interventions, um, looking at, at obviously some things like the longitudinal effects of, of COVID-19 as well. Um, and uh, and, and then you know we've also built out new algorithms. There's new ways to read this DNA methylation markers that we measure uh, for other functional health benefits. I I know one of the things you just mentioned as well was, um, you know, things like, uh, you know, a history of exposures or the things you've been exposed to, Uh, you know, DNA methylation is a really, really robust platform. It's, but it's also very, very new, Uh, but we even have ways to look at how much arsenic or heavy metals you've been exposed to over your entire life, how many, uh, you know, plastics you've been exposed to. And so this, this epigenetic platform, uh, you know, if there's one thing to take away from this talk, I think that it is that this epigenetic genetic platform will change every area of medicine as a, as a diagnostic, which is uh, changeable, um, but also can tell us a lot about different areas of medicine um, and, and really fit a need that we don't have in a lot of diagnostics. And so I'm very excited about the field, but particularly the thing that we focus on the company is aging, um, how to quantify that process and then, and then hopefully how to reverse it um, so that we can have you know really, really good results on increasing people's health span and lifespan, making them uh, not only live longer, but, but live a, a quality of life as well.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize you started so recently because I believe I had my first test with your company within probably weeks of your company opening up. <laughs> I didn't realize it was a new comp- company um, and it, because I was uh, getting an intervention that we may talk about called well, V cells, very small embryonic like stem cells, which is probably the, I think we both agree, the best stem cell intervention out there, at least from the data that you have compiled. And um, But uh, before we go, Diving down that rabbit hole, I was wondering if you could step back a bit and just talk about the DNA methylation and the science. You mentioned the the timing of it, and you know it's only been around for a few years, but um, just to, just precisely describe what it is so people can understand that. I mean, they may have heard the term, but they're not really realize or understand what's going on. And a uh, cor- corollary to that co- question was: was it uh, Stephen Horvath that started this whole process, or were there other researchers other than him?
1: Yeah. So, so, um, uh, you know, just to give a little bit of history of, of this platform, um, you know, it, it, this idea of epigenetic methylation really starts with one idea, which is that every cell in your body has the exact same DNA, right? If you were to test your, your eyes or your, your skin cells, they'd all have that same DNA, but uh, they obviously behave very differently, right? Your skin cells are obviously expressing a lot of genes that are different from your heart cells, for instance. And and the way that they ex- change that expression, sort of what genes are turned on or turned off, is via this process of epigenetic regulation. Um, so it sort of is a, a way to tell your genes, out of all the different things that you can do on your DNA, which ones should you actually be doing? Um, so whenever these cells start and then they start to commit to different lineages as they differentiate into different, different types of tissues, they change their epigenetic expression to regulate what genes are turned on and turned off. And so I oftentimes you know, liken it to a little bit like a light bulb. You can have an engineer look at a light bulb and tell you exactly what it's made for and, and how to turn it on and all that kind of thing. But if you don't know if it's on or off, then you're missing a big point of why that was created. And it's the same with our cells. And so this idea of measuring how things were turned on or turned off in our DNA expression um, has been known for a long time, but only recently scaled to a platform where we can actually investigate this in large scale. Um, And and so uh, what we measure is DNA methylation. And this is um, sort of the silencing of gene transcription. So when at the beginning of our genes where they have those promoter sites, which uh, we, we sort of measure methylation at those locations, which then is associated with essentially decreased expression of that gene. Um, The converse process is a process called acetylation, which is sort of a charged molecule which can open up those proteins to allow... Your genes to be transcribed, and so we measure specifically just that that negative uh, regulatory process, the DNA methylation. Um, and one other thing I should note is, for anyone who's been in this integrative health space, they're probably familiar with this idea of methylation and and you know MTHFR and COMT pathways and 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 things of that nature. This is very different than that. We're not necessarily measuring your ability to methylate. What we're measuring is what the expression is on your DNA. Um, and and uh, and as a result, you know, the way that I would I would tell everyone to think about this is that. Um, you know, this will be almost uh, as bigger, if not bigger than things like genetic testing or 23 ME type platforms, because instead of just investigating it once in your life, you can investigate it multiple times because these things are changeable. Your regulation of your DNA methylation changes over time. And so um, we can really, you know, due to some of the advances with big data analysis and artificial intelligence, what we're able to do is actually take large scales of that data. So we can look at over 900,000 locations in your genome to see mm. what the percentage of methylation is. And and then we can correlate it to to several different things we can correlate it to for instance You know, if we wanted to predict athletic performance, we could predict athletic performance. And so the idea, I think, is that right now um, this platform is absolutely in its infancy but can be really trained to predict a lot of things if you have the covariate data in large scale. Um, However, aging, particularly aging, was one of the first things to be looked at in this platform because it had such a uh, sort of a high correlation. Um, Whenever they first started looking at this, which started with publications right around 2009, they found that DNA methylation was very, very highly related to age in a way that that was correlated, um, you know, very significantly. And so, as you mentioned, in, in 2013, Dr. Stephen Horvath at UCLA um, sort of took the ball and, and pushed it a little bit further. where he created a chronological age trained methylation clock, which with just a, a couple, uh, you know, nanograms of DNA could tell you how old chronologically an individual was with their DNA. And, and it was very, very highly accurate. In fact, it was so accurate, I think it'll probably uh, end up being considered for a Nobel Prize uh, because it, it sort of elucidated this idea that aging, this aging process um, can actually be quantified very, very accurately, but also might even be responsible for a lot of the health considerations we see with age. Um, you know, for, for everyone you know out there who's new to this aging idea, it's important to note that aging is the number one risk factor for all chronic disease and death. Um, you know, if there's one thing you could do, uh, in a lifestyle capacity to prevent, um, you know, the development of cancer or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or, 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 most of these age related diseases, it is to essentially not age. Um, and so that is, that's a goal, but it's also a very difficult one to measure and do because chronological age has been our only measurement for this for some time. And, and we all know people in their seventies who look like they're in their fifties and we all know people in the fifties who look like they're in their seventies. And so chronological age has never been the best measurement, um, but this sort of molecular measurement, um, can give us a much better idea of how we're aging. Um, and, and if we can sort of treat this as a primary outcome, if we can treat aging, then we can reduce the risk of a lot of other chronic disease. Um, you know, the one statistic I always like to mention when I introduce people to this topic, it is that if everyone in the world were to be seven years younger biologically than chronologically. So if someone was 50 chronologically and had a biological age of 43, uh, if everyone in the world had that same Delta, we would have 50% less people sick. Um, you know, overnight we would reduce disease by. Half and that is incredibly powerful statistic, which I hopefully uh, can illustrate to people just how important aging is.
0: So I believe you told me previously that you're working, actually working with uh, Dr. Horvath, uh, and he is a researcher. He did not, he developed the science, some of the initial science, but he obviously doesn't doesn't have a commercial application of that. So uh, first of all, is that true? And then can you? Well, let's address that, and then I have some other questions to follow up with.
1: Definitely. So, so, uh, Dr. Horvath does not have a commercial application. Um, he works through sort of the clock foundation, which is a nonprofit, which encourages collaboration, um, on, on looking at the ways in, in reasons we age, but also then the treatments for this as well. Um, recently Dr. Horvath has gone a little bit more, I would say research-based where he's doing a lot of mammal and and mouse-based clocks. But with that being said, there are many people in the industry who have sort of taken up the mantle of its application in the clinical space. And so, um, you know, we, we hopefully definitely are one of those to, to Hopefully, lead this process. Um, working with a lot of great researchers, a lot of great work is being done at Yale with some of these really, really precise clocks. Um, other work is really great work is being done at Dartmouth, and and really all these different areas have, um, I would say, specialties uh, where we can look at things like the immune system, where we can look at um, you know different markers of aging. And so um, right now, aging clocks are are, are just exploding. Uh, you know, there's more created, more analyses of these marks every single day, um, and uh and, and so we're doing a lot of large scale research projects to create the best clocks in class. So we can really tell you all the processes that are, are, are happening within your body as it relates to the aging process.
0: Yeah. Thanks so for that update because uh, some of the people watching this already probably are aware or heard of the epigenetic aging clocks and the test for it. But what they probably haven't is have access to someone like you is really uh, leading in the field. So I'm wondering if you could share with us the current or the, the newest innovations that are out there and collaborations as you're in the process of developing. And is part of that um, also integrating other assays other than the methylation, like you mentioned the acetylation, which is the turning on of the gene. So is there an attempt to, to integrate both of those processes to get a more refined analysis of what's going on?
1: absolutely. You know, I think that the idea here now is that, um, you know, as I mentioned, this is sort of where genetics was 30 years ago, but there's one big difference from between then and now, which is that we have ways of really interrogating this data uh, with artificial intelligence and with data science procedures to really get useful information out of it. Um, and so there are a lot of different groups which are, are doing really great work. One uh, that I love to draw emphasis to is uh, Duke University uh, with uh, Terry Moffitt's lab, who they're doing actually some, some really fun work on these, uh, clocks, which don't tell your overall age, but tell you instantaneously how quickly you're aging. So what is your pace of aging right at this moment? Um, and and I'm really excited about that one because it's incredibly accurate, but it's also sort of a snapshot in time. That's not influenced by some previous behaviors. I think we all probably have, you know, behaviors or things we've done in the past, which we wish we might not, we wish we wouldn't have, uh, which might have impacted our overall biological age. And this is able to tell you instantaneously how that process is going. And so they're definitely leading with, you know, phenotypic measures uh, of that clock, as I mentioned, the, the work at Dartmouth um, is able to do some really cool things with immune cell subsets. So just by taking one sample of DNA, they can actually tell you how many of which type of immune cells you have. So how many CD4 versus CD8 T cells? And that's incredibly important mm-hmm. as we create more accurate clocks and also get an idea of how our immune system is functioning. Um, you know, in addition to that, the work at Yale that's being done is, is sort of taking a lot of the work done by Dr. Horvath's lab with some algorithms that people might be familiar with, like Grimmage and. Pheno age, but making them much more accurate. So we can say that there's uh you know hardly any variation um, in, in some of the principal component clocks they've released now can reduce the sample size needed for some of these clinical trials by 120th, a massive amount to make these results a lot more accurate and a lot more accurate on the intrapersonal basis as well. So that whenever you measure and then retest, you know that the signal you're picking up is actual aging signal instead of just noise as a result of maybe the the fluctuation in in the measurement of DNA methylation. And so I would say that those really those three locations are, are some of the most exciting for aging. But they're even doing some things now um, with senolytic clocks, uh, which is probably something we'll talk about as it relates uh, to COVID, where they can tell you the overall burden of senescence in your body and, and who might benefit the best from senolytic procedures like uh, dasatinib and quercetin or fisetin, um, for instance. And so, um, you know, this, this field of epigenetics is, is just beginning, and, and, and even outside of aging, um, there, there's now products in the market which are able to diagnose up to fifty types Types of cancer um, from a, a single blood test and actually tell you where it's at, and so um, there are even algorithms which can predict schizophrenia or which can predict, um, you know, uh, a variety of different things, such as are you going to lose weight with caloric restriction? And so um, this this data set is sort of just being generated, uh, but the applications and the reporting you can get from it are, are limitless. But in the areas of aging specifically, I would say um, some of the senolytic work, uh, some of the work at Duke, Yale, um, are all very very exciting areas. Excellent, all right, so um, with that as a background, I guess we
0: could start to delve into some of the well before we start to some of the practical applications or the indications for the use of this as a as a assay to determine what's going on, uh, are there other or can you, there, there, you mentioned or alluded to the fact there are other companies starting to do this. And how do you compare your company to some of the other companies in the space that, that are offering epigenetic clock, uh, clock aging?
1: Uh, assays it's a great question um and, and one that uh, i always like to answer because it, it this is such a new uh you know a new topic that there's not a lot of i would say education out there what makes the best clocks or what makes the best mm-hmm. analysis or measurement um, you know there's usually two things that i like to draw attention to whenever i get asked that question the first is um, the breadth of the measurement um, as i mentioned with new clocks and, and new analysis coming out every day one of the important things is making sure that you're measuring a lot of data because as these new clocks Clocks or new algorithms come out, you want to be able to update them to make them even more accurate or more insightful. Um, and, and so, one of one of the core tenets of what we wanted to do was to measure a lot of DNA. We measure over nine hundred thousand locations. Uh, uh, that is generally out of twenty six million, approximately. So it's still a very very small amount of the total amount, but it's still significantly more than any of our competitors, uh, which might be measuring you know at, at most uh, you know a hundred thousand. Um, and and so we we definitely like to scale because. This is going to be a forward compatible platform. Uh, much like DNA, you know, we're still, you know, the, the human genome was only recently finished um, in terms of sequencing. And, and the same will happen with epigenetic methylation, where uh, as we learn how to use this information, we'll be able to interpret it different ways. And so, even in our company, we release new reports every three to four weeks with additional insights that are published in the literature. That way, we can um, keep everyone informed and up to date. And again, it's only a updated reports on a point in time. I want to make sure that that's clear because it's just at the time that you're taking that blood sample. Uh, but it, again, the information that we can gather from that can continue to be expanded for a long time. And, and we sort of use that the sort of what is the basis of clinical literature. We, we use the, the same method that, that most researchers do so that as researchers come out with new information, we can report it. Um, the next part of it, as I mentioned, is that algorithms piece, um, particularly uh, you know, the interpretation of that data. And, and um, we only use published algorithms. That is one of the things that that we are very adamant about, because um, otherwise, if you don't know how these measurements are, are related to health outcomes, or related to different therapies, it can, it's sort of like, you know, taking the word of a fortune teller, right? You, you know, you could probably go to a fortune teller, and they could tell you how long you'll live or, or how old your your body is, but how do you know it's accurate? And, and we really feel like publication is is one of the main ways uh, to have that you know, scientifically valid and reliable measurement. And then the last thing that I always like to say is that um, the important thing when you're taking these DNA methylation samples is also the tissue that you're taking. Um, we only use blood. And, and the reason being is that most of these algorithms have been created off of blood samples. One of the interesting things about epigenetics is that every cell type is different. Um, so, you know, if we were to measure your brain with the same algorithm we measured, uh, you know, on your blood, we would get much, much lower ages than, than we would on your blood. And if we tested your breast tissue, for instance, we'd get much, much higher ages than if we tested your blood. And so the tissue type is very, very important, which is why uh, we only use blood. Although it's not as easy to collect, it is definitely more scientifically reliable. And so I would say that, uh, you know, as you're evaluating which epigenetic companies to use, uh, those those would be my three criteria. Figure out the algorithms they're using and reporting. Make sure they're they're published. Um, make sure that they're they're measuring, uh, you know, a good number of locations in case you want to know anything about uh, that sample in the future. And then lastly, make sure that they're using a collection method which has been validated in literature as well, which mainly at this point is either blood or skin.
0: Okay, so another aspect of testing, of course, is reproducibility, and I'm wondering if you could comment on that with respect to the assays that you're using, so that. If, a, if you were to send in the same s- sample dr- uh, drawn literally minutes apart, would you get the same result?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's actually uh, one of the biggest uh, drawbacks of where epigenetic methylation aging algorithms have been. Um, and, and so uh, that that's always been a little bit of an issue, even some of the newest algorithms out there had a mean absolute error of around 1.9 years, which can be highly, highly misleading. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, you take one sample, and then maybe six months later, do another. Um, a lot of that, as I mentioned, might be noise and not the actual effect of aging on your system. Um, and so that's why I think some of the work from Yale, which has been happening from Dr. Morgan Levine's lab and, and particularly led by one of her postdocs, Dr. Albert Higgins Chan, um, have been very, very exciting. And, and they've uh, used sort of a, a statistical method called the principal component analysis to make these things very, very reproducible. Um, and so one of the one of the metrics we use to, to talk about reproducibility is a measurement called the intraclass correlation, which is essentially if you take two of that exact same sample, test it twice, how correlated are those to one another? Um, and, and previously, as I mentioned, we had some issues with that where the icc values have only been right around 0. 0.6 to you know 0. 0.75 but now with these new algorithms they're all above 0. 0.95 which is incredibly reproducible and considered exceptional in the scientific community and so um those algorithms that have been you know uh, i would say are, are about to be published here very shortly with yale um are, are a big game changer in in the reproducibility of these metrics so it's really the algorithm using that that contributes mostly to the
0: reproducibility
1: of the test uh, absolutely and and uh, yeah. and and also, sort of the size. You know, I, I would also say, uh, you know, the the original algorithms like Grim age and Pheno age, uh, you know, didn't use very many CPGs. Whereas now these principal component al- analysis algorithms are using over eighty six thousand. Um, and and so, you know, being able to uh, get a, a sort of a larger amount of data can definitely help improve the clocks. Um, and and as we go forward, there are always going to be ways to improve these clocks as we as we mm-hmm. get closer to isolating that real function of age and how age is playing into uh, the acceleration of all of these diseases. Um, And and so, so these things need to be, uh, I would say, changeable and modifiable as the data grows, which it's growing at an exponential rate.
0: Yeah. And you had mentioned the, you're continuously modifying your reports, but on a monthly basis. And I'm assuming that is the uh, explanation or the uh, interpretation of the data that you've compiled with respect to what, what it means for that specific individual. And I'm, I'm guessing that's because the uh, DNA methylation patterns, which which would suggest turning off of certain genes, either off or on, which we can you can demonstrate, would would correlate with specific diseases or at least risk for certain diseases. Is that is that the case?
1: Absolutely. Even, you know, to give you a good example, even last week, uh, toward the end of the week, um, there was a study published looking at, uh, you know, how C-reactive protein um, versus DNA methylation measurements of C-reactive protein related to to brain aging um, and, and sort of this inflammation um, uh, and how it related to the aging process. And so one of the next reports we'll have, will actually use that data to sort of tell people how, what we might think there's C-reactive protein is as a result of, of epigenetic methylation. And, and that is a better measurement of brain aging. And so, you know, as this new data comes out, we have the data to interpret it. And, and so we want to provide uh, any of our customers who do our test with with the continuing updates and, and uh, generally, even if someone did a test, you know, when we first started, they'll probably be getting updates for the next you know decade, um, as we continue to, to see how this information and the ability to interpret it progresses.
0: Yeah, Good. So one final question before we delve into the more exciting, I think clinical applications would be uh, a comparison to another effort to uh, assess biological aging, which is telomere length. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can just describe uh, briefly what telomeres are and why you and I both believe that um,
1: epigenetic clocks are far superior. Absolutely. So so for anyone who's not familiar, telomeres are sort of the end caps of your DNA. They're sequences at the end of your DNA, which um, over time are slowly shortened. Sort of every time our cell undergoes a replication, we lose a bit of that cap um, on our DNA. and And when this keeps happening, as we get really, you know, a lot older, those can get actually too short and start to, we can actually start to lose DNA, which is important to us. Um, And so when that process happens, we can have the cell essentially have some problems. Um, And and so telomeres for, for many, many years have been thought of as uh, sort of one of the the best gold standards for aging because it's a process which highly correlates to how old someone is because they're going to have more replications and more cellular turnover as they get older. Um, And and so um, unfortunately, though, telomeres, uh, you know, in several biological reviews, and I would say don't take my word on this, but, um, you know, in these head-to-head comparisons, DNA methylation is significantly more correlated to the aging process than telomeres. And more importantly, it's also more predictive of health outcomes. So if we're really trying to Predict the results, the sort of the disease and health span related things, which are associated with aging, DNA methylation is a much better way of doing that. Just to give you an idea, the R value between age and telomere length um, it fluctuates right around 0.3, whereas the R value for some of these DNA clocks with age is, is sometimes over 0.9. And so there is a, a you know significantly higher correlation. It's better at predicting health outcomes. Um, but with that being said, telomere length is still one of those things that is a is a biomarker of aging. It, it is a separate process. If you were to make sure that the telomere length never decreased in a cell, you'd still see methylation-related biological aging. And if you made sure that the, the methylation age was reset, you would actually still see telomere length um, aging. And so there's two separate processes. But, um, you know, in, in a recent review, they actually looked at, at twins um, and, and tried to ascribe how much of the difference uh in their aging process was affected by these different markers and and they they said right around 2% of the variance in phenotypic aging was due to telomere length whereas right around 35% of that was based on these epigenetic methylation clocks um and, and so just to give you a relative idea of scale while they both might be important we definitely would think that the DNA methylation clocks are are significantly better but with that being said we also actually can estimate your telomere length via just DNA methylation and that's one of the reports that we do
0: Excellent. Well, thanks for that great answer. And let me just, uh, interject, uh, uh, Definition, or at least an explanation of, of something you mentioned, I think many people who haven't studied science wouldn't be aware of, and that's the R value. You quoted a number of 0.3 correlation with the telomeres versus 0.9 with the DNA methylation. And that R value can go anywhere from zero to one. Zero being absolutely no correlation and one being a 100% perfect correlation. So you could th- I think you can see that a 0.3 is it's pretty poor versus 0.9, which is pretty, pretty close to being perfect. So, uh, But that was a perfect segue into the next uh, portion that we'd like to discuss, which is the clinical applications. So um, I think we we should start with the hottest topic out there, which is the, the recent work you've done showing the correlations with the DNA methylation and the outcomes in COVID. So if you can jump in there, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, and and so we've been working uh, as our collaborator on this project with um, Cornell um, University and, and their immunology department. Um, and, and with one of the interesting things about our, our patient population is that a lot of them are retesting. And so we were able to get a good idea um, of, of sort of the baseline for these patients. And then whenever they developed COVID, we were also able to see the changes when they retested. Um, and so that data set is one of the ones that we were uh, lucky enough to have at a very early stage in this investigation. And, and In that analysis, where we actually used those uh, new algorithms from Yale, uh, those PC, the principal component algorithms, we saw some really, really interesting things as it related to to COVID-19 and aging. Um, The first thing that we saw, which is, is, uh, you know, I would say has been described relatively robustly in the literature now, is that we saw a telomere length shortening. Um, and, and and so uh, you know I think that 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 has now been shown in several different studies where telomere length decreases with with COVID exposure and uh, I, I can't really speculate on the mechanism for that yet um, but you know it uh, we we definitely know that now several studies with different measurements of telomere length have all concluded the same thing and so that was one of the interesting things we found. However, one of the other interesting things that we found was um, the difference in in aging um, as it related to age. So. Um, in our cohort which is still relatively small only right around 22 people um, uh, we saw that people who were over 50 tended to have advanced ages um, as a result of covid 19 exposure where uh they were they were sort of aging uh, um, even with mild and, and moderate disease um, however one of the interesting things that we also saw is that people under 50 had a different response um, people under 50 actually showed um, an anti-aging effect where they actually got a little bit younger mm-hmm. um, and so uh you know there were a lot of reasons we might postulate that change, uh, but we did see a, a relatively clear line of demarcation. Interesting. I would speculate hormesis would be one of them, That you have
0: enough resiliency and reserve capacity to actually use that to activate your biological mechanisms to counteract that, which in, in, in uh, result uh, decreases your aging response. Whereas that, that resiliency disappears or is radically diminished when you're over 50
1: absolutely and that, that was actually the our speculation on it as well uh which is that um particularly uh you know having to do with some of those naive t-cell responses where maybe people under 50 don't have the necessary um t-cell response to mount that hormetic response um while people under 50 definitely you know do and that's why that, that we're actually seeing that anti-aging effect in, in younger individuals or no aging effect but seeing uh you know an aging effect in, in people who are unable to mount that response so that is definitely our hypothesis but we with that being said are, are are trying now to investigate other um, similar types of infections um, to see if if we see something similar to that um, with that age demarcation um, as well. And so that was, uh, you know, definitely an interesting uh, um, finding. Yeah. So I'm
0: particularly intrigued with the concept of telomere reversal or growth, because there's certainly been a lot of research into the effort to attempt to lengthen telomeres with supplements. And I'm wondering if some of the interventions that you're measuring, um, other than supplements to to lengthen telomeres, um, where you've seen a significant reduction in in biological age, if if those interventions have also uh, addressed
1: telomere length so at the moment i would say that um and it's important i also want to to make sure everyone knows that this idea of uh um of of dna methylation and and these interventional studies where we're looking at before and afters is still very very new uh the first ever interventional trial came out in september of 2019 right right, right, you know right, right before the beginning of the pandemic and obviously that slowed a lot of research and so so we don't have uh you know thousands of studies or even hundreds of studies to look at we're really working with you know 10 to 15 at the moment um, to, to look at some of these effects but w- i i can say that we you know if we see some anti-aging effects we don't always see telomere elongation effects um, again they tend to be sort of separate processes um and uh and with that being said these telomere algorithms via epigenetic methylation so so we're not actually measuring those telomeres we're just measuring methylation and using it to predict telomere length which tends to be fairly accurate um and, and so um i i I should also note that, uh, uh, even though we're not measuring it directly, it's still very, very new. And so a lot of those telomere analysis have not done on even some of those other published studies. Um, and so right now we don't see that, uh, you know, telomere length is correlated to reductions in biological aging or vice versa.
0: Okay. Thank you for that, uh, refinement of the, uh, of understand, understanding the telomere association. So, um, how about some of the other Clinical conditions that you've noticed. And uh, then we could talk about some of the interventions that you've been impressed with with respect uh, to being effective at reducing biological aging.
1: Absolutely. And you know, one of the one of the things I think it's important to talk about is a little bit about the baseline of, of just mm-hmm. us generally. And, and, and um, you know, most people, depending on the algorithms you use, in the United States tend to have relatively advanced aging. And and, and one of the other things is that men are usually much more likely to have advanced aging than women. Um, And and so, uh, and, and, you know, that, that might make sense to most people, as we know that generally women tend to live longer. Um, uh, But but with that being said, I would say that those are important baseline characteristics. However, some of the most exciting therapies that we've seen to work um, are are definitely things that we've, we've, you know, briefly mentioned here before Um, some stem cell procedures, uh, particularly like those very small embryonic like stem cells, uh, uh, we've seen, you know, plasma exchange um, or, you know, this plasma apheresis uh, process, which has a really interesting history, um, also have some very good results. Um, and then we're actually about to publish another trial, which, which is very exciting, where we use the S- uh that we mentioned earlier, disatinib and quercetin, over the course of six months and, and saw multiple age reductions. Um, and, and so those are some of the, the newest and most exciting things that I would put on the list. But the data, which has already been published, has shown things like combinations of metformin, growth hormone, and DHEA um, as ways to reverse this epigenetic aging process, um, supplementation with some methyl-related factors if you have some deficiencies there. And then and then vitamin D being one of the the I would say really robustly uh, studied ones, um, which shows multi-year age reductions in in and tends to work better in, in, in individuals who are relatively overweight. Um, and, and so um and then with that being said, we know a lot about diet and lifestyle and how to change these things as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the but so the three most effective interventions probably uh, correlate with what my understanding of the best therapies or strategies are. Well, one would be V cells as the optimum form of stem cell intervention, and there's a wide variety of people who are getting stem cells. Uh, and I'm, let me just uh, expand a bit about it uh, on it right now. There's again, this V cells is short for very small embryonic-like stem cells, and you would think it'd be V C E L S but it's VSELs, the, the S mm-hmm. short, short for small. And they're so small, they're about 40 nanometers that they easily get transported through the lung capillary so that if you were to get an IV injection of them, it can spread to the rest of your body without being broken down or distorted. So that's, that's a beautiful component of it. Uh, secondly, is that they uh, tend to be, in everyone so that they don't disappear with age. Your body has some mechanism to replenish these. It's it's one of the strategies your body uses to stay healthy. And uh, they're extracted from peripheral blood, unlike regular stem cells, uh, assuming that they're autologous, which means they're from your own body. They're not taken from your uh, bone marrow or your fat tissue, uh, which are the two most common sources. Uh, And then uh, uh, they're not taken from other humans. They're like mesenchymal stem cells. And I think one of the most important components of it is that they are pluripotential. Now, what the heck does that mean? It means that they can, um, uh, differentiate into almost any tissue in your body. Whereas some of the mesenchymal stem cells are, are it's not pluripotential, it's, uh, totally, potential, I think. So they don't have as much differentiation capacity. So that really it is the ultimate type of stem cells if you're going to use it. And, uh so i'm and i' I'm a very strong proponent of that uh It's not really widely available now, but uh will be because there's some legal issues that are having to be worked through but uh it will be probably in two thousand and twenty two most likely and at that point you know I couldn't recommend it more heartily essentially it's very similar maybe may, p- people might've heard of a PRP, which is short for platelet-rich plasma. And it's a similar process in that these cells are isolated from uh, peripheral blood that's drawn from uh, just a regular venipuncture. And then they're spun down and with the V cells, uh, uh, well, with PRP, the, um, inter- the, there's no t- type of processing other than isolation of the cells before they're injected back into the tissue or into the, into the blood. Uh, but with the V cells, they're actually activated with a laser, which sort of reawakens the cells and, uh, allows them to differentiate it uh, or, or to be activated so that they can, uh, respond to the environment that they're placed into and reproduce into the appropriate tissue. So, um, that is the the best form of, of V cells, but then we've also got the, um, the senolytic. So you got the V cells and I just started for the e- expansion on that, but it's a topic that most, m- most anyone has not heard of. Uh, and then you've got the plasmapheresis, which you could probably go into some depth on this. And then we got the senolytic therapy. So the senolytic therapy is, is an intervention that you just mentioned earlier. There's a number of, uh, nutrients or drugs like quercetin and fisetin and the which is a drug. That can rem- then remove these senescent cells. And what is a senescent cell? A senescent cell is one that is uh, essentially senescent. It's an elderly cell, aged cell that has lost the ability to reproduce. It just hangs around, not dying, not getting cleared out, and creating these inflammatory byproducts that not only uh, mess up that cell itself, but leak out of the cell and, and really damage severely, kind of like a rotten apple in a in a basket of apples, and it just damages everything around it. So there's these interventions can go in, and selectively identify these senescent cells and destroy them. That's what senolytic, senolytic therapy means. Seno meaning the senescent cell and lytic means it lyses it or destroys it. So of those three, have you, and you can maybe talk a little bit more about plasmapheresis because I, you know, I've uh, you, you have a better understanding than I do. And uh, if you could just rank them and, and from what you've seen in the limited, and, and I completely understand it. it's, this is relatively new knowledge and you're still in the process of compiling the data, but from what you've compiled so far, how would you, what, curious yeah. as to your ranking of them.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and, uh, and so just before I rank them, I, I definitely want to give a, a little bit of background on the plasma uh, you know, exchange rate for Rhesus. And um, just because especially I think that background is, is particularly interesting uh, uh, because what they what they did to sort of first uncover this was they actually took young mice and old mice and, and actually put their vascular systems together so that the young mouse was actually giving their blood to the old mouse and vice versa. And what they actually saw was that the, the young mouse actually had a uh, rejuvenation, or I should say the old mouse. Had a, a, a rejuvenation effect, yeah. uh, where, where the old mouse uh, got uh, younger and, and more healthy, and then um, surprisingly, a little bit vice versa. They also saw that the young mouse actually got older and actually had a worsening of, of, of some of those physiological symptoms. And so, what they started to think of was, hey, you know, there's probably something in the blood um, that is is causing this sort of aging or, or poor phenotypic uh, health process. And 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 so, um, so that sort of began this investigation into what markers in young blood versus versus you know adult blood um you know are are different and, and how can we maybe influence this type of process and, and and to you know without going too much into it one of the evolutions of that was this idea of taking someone's own plasma, um, you know, taking it out of their body, filtering it, um, putting in a few other ingredients and then reinfusing it um, almost as a way to to decrease some of those um unfortunate or maybe anti or those aging, pro um different molecules or signaling molecules. Um, and, and so with that, you, you know, some of the some of the data on that has been done with things like the AMBAR trial where they've looked at um, Alzheimer's and, and, you know, using this as a therapy to prevent cognitive dysfunction with age. And they've got really, really great results. But we've also, I would say, in um, in both mouse models, uh, actually via some of the work with Dr. Horvath um, and in, in some of the clinical trials that we're actually running now are seeing anti-aging effects of just that, that plasma exchange process. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that we really try and look at as we look at these therapies is multi-year intervention changes where with one intervention, we can see multiple years reduced. And, And the reason is we want everyone to get to that seven year Delta, right. To be seven years younger where they're experiencing then 50% 50% less likely, um, you know, cause of all of these diseases. And so, um, so the plasma exchange is definitely an exciting, um, therapy again, not really widely available just yet, but, but definitely is exciting for the future. Um, and so, uh, you know, ranking these is, is as you mentioned, very difficult because we're not always comparing the same data set, the same in patient mm-hmm. subsets, et cetera. But right now I would say that all the, the and quercetin looks very, very reliable, especially in in older individuals at an age reduction. It doesn't have those same multi-year age reductions that we're seeing. Interesting, interesting. And and, and so it does look to be positive and reliably positive. Um, It doesn't have, you know, some of those multi-year age reversals and that same, as big of a gap as we're seeing with maybe V-cells or plasma exchange. Um, And I would say with the V-cells and plasma exchange, we're seeing, we are seeing some of those multi-year age reversals, even just with one or two procedures. Um, We're not sure how long that, that, that lasts. Yet we're not sure if they're, uh, you know, two months later or a month later that it might reverse. But we are seeing, um, you know, just after procedure and over a course of a couple of weeks that we're seeing age reduction in in, in in a very very significant way. And so, um, you know, I, I would say that uh, between those three, which are the most exciting, I think that. Um, I would put, you know, the V cells so far, as well as the plasma exchange at the top, and then, uh, you know, at a, a relatively far second, the the synolytics, although, again, I, I think that, you know, any of these age treatment protocols are uh, better off with multifaceted, multi-targeted pathways. And so I think that the combination is, is also something that can be very exciting.
0: My goal is to get like a 40 year reduction <laughs> since I have access to these therapies and be one of the people lower it most effectively. So but I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you think it's possible that in a plasmapheresis that you're actually removing senescent
1: cells and maybe that's why it's so effective? You know, and unfortunately, I wish I would knew more about the actual physical process. It's something that I'm not generally, I would say, as up to date on. I, I think that you know one of the leading candidates, and one of the studies I'm very excited to do is is, is looking at the proteins that might be changing, um, particularly in that plasma, because the plasma is is very rich with um, with with protein material. Um, and and in terms of epigenetics, it, it has a lot of cell-free DNA, which is generally um, DNA from throughout the body. And so I think that that uh, you know maybe the the leading uh, ideas that it might be filtering out some proteins which might causes this anti-aging process and 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 one of the things they also infuse is is albumin which binds to a lot of proteins and so i think that um this replacement of albumin or the updated um uh, you know uh sort of filtering out of some of these, these abnormal proteins, um, are, are might be the reason it's having such an effect. And, and I also think that it's important to mention that the thing that's been studied the most for, which is cognitive dementia, um, and, you know, Alzheimer's is also known to have, uh, you know, abnormal protein development, right. With those beta and tau amyloid plaques in the brain. So I, I would, I would, uh, you know, without being an expert in this, and I would definitely refer to, to others like the, you know, the convoys from, from Berkeley or, 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 uh, you know, a couple others. Um, I, I would generally say that, uh, that, um, I would anticipate that. That's the, the, the mechanism, but, but, uh, not sure right now, all I know is that from the data we're seeing, it's highly effective at reversing these clocks. So has anyone just been looking at the, actually the proteins that are filtered out. It it started. I should say it's starting to, to happen, particularly with the advent of a, uh, of a new type of technology where uh, they're able to not just look at, at certain proteins, but look at untargeted proteins. So they can just sort of say, we're going to look at all these different factors. Um, it's sort of the seer bioinformatic platform. Um, and and uh, they're able to sort of then capture even really, really small scale proteins to look at that. And so the research is just now beginning as, as again, some of these other methods are just being now created. Wow. Wow.
0: So, what just curious as to uh, your thoughts are with respect to the ultimate reduction in biological age? Do you think there's some plateau? And do you think it would be a, an absolute value with respect to number of years or, or more likely linked to a percentage of, abs-
1: of the reduction? So, maybe 50%. Yeah, you know, the early evidence that we've seen in our patients is that, uh, that it's probably going to be more of a percentage, um, because some people uh, have, uh, you know, even genetically are predispositioned to have worse epigenetic ages. Um, And so Mm -hmm. I think there's probably some factors which are uh, unfortunately immutable, which might then uh, be reflected in that percentage rather than the absolute. Um, But you know, some really exciting work is being done here. Um, uh, You know, one of the things that people are really excited about is this idea of cellular reprogramming. And uh, Mm -hmm. um, this has gotten a lot of news recently because of a company in the anti-aging space who was just created by Jeff Bezos and is really well-funded. Actually, I think uh, Dr. Horvath is actually going to be going to this company called Altos Labs to work on some of this cellular reprogramming where um, there's actually a step in in, in embryogenesis, right? Whenever we're, we're creating a, a you know a, a new human where the epigenetic clocks are reset completely. Uh, they're set to, to stage zero. And so um, there are a lot of uh, people who believe that with certain um, type of things, particularly one thing called the Yamanaka factor, which is a combination of obviously proteins uh, can reset that epigenetic clock. Uh, one of the most notable, um, I would say, uh, experiences in that work or publications that work was been from Dr. David Sinclair's lab in Harvard where they used these Yamanaka factors to actually uh, reprogram the epigenetic age of, of eyes um, in, in these mice and in these mice when they did that they were able to actually restore age related vision loss and so I, I think that um, you know with the therapies that we're working with now there's probably going to be a plateau and a plateau that is is still I would say a proportional or percentage related um, uh, uh, factor but I think that in the future if the cellular reprogramming works out. I think it uh, could be very, very exciting. Um, it, it's just a matter of uh, you know when it will actually be commercialized as it's a much more riskier strategy.
0: Yeah. I, I couldn't think of a, a better summary than you just gave because it was it clearly, if you first hear about the Almanac factors, you become really intrigued with it and the exciting potential. But when you start to go explore it in deeper details, is associated with a load of risk. And I personally don't think It'll be really available in my lifetime because there's just too many darn risks with it. And it, it, it's trans primarily, it's, it's uh, I have to have an adenovirus to integrate it into the cells and you have to target it. You have to turn it off. You have to turn it on. Uh, in Sinclair's work, he uses a molecule called doxycycline, which is a tetracycline antibiotic, which is, I don't know idea why they use it because it seems really foolish. I mean, tetracycline is not an innocuous drug. Why would they? Why would they use something like a, a nutrient or something? But I guess maybe a nutrient would wouldn't work because you'd be exposed to it all the time. You wouldn't have as much control. So it'd have to be something foreign that your body isn't normally. But there could be a lot less innocuous molecules they could have used. So I'm 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 excited about the potential, like you. But I am I'm a bit more concerned about the toxic unintended side
1: of side effects. of this. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the, one of the other things that we're particularly highlighting are things that everyone can do, because although we might be talking a lot about these more, uh, you know, exotic and, uh, type therapies, which have multi-year age reductions, there are things that everyone can do today to reverse their epigenetic age just through diet and lifestyle and, and nutrition. Um, and, 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 you know, some of those other things. And so I think that, um, you know, if for anyone who's contemplating doing this testing or even, you know, working on their own aging process, Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, don't, don't be, uh, scared if you can't get some of these procedures because you can still have an impact and and still make a very good impact over time.
0: Yeah. So why don't we just dive into that now? I can give you my, uh, I concepts or beliefs, what I think would be some of the most powerful and that's would be, uh, probably vitamin D optimization to 60, nanograms, uh, optimize metabolic flexibility. So not be insulin resistant. Usually the clinical side effect of that is being overweight. If you are insulin resistant, uh, and then, um, probably exercise, I think would be my top three. Well, what is So have you looked at these when you're, I, I don't know if you do, when you, when you get the send the sample, and I don't think that you do like an analysis of their lifestyle events. So you may not have been able to compile the data on that, but, uh, what what are what are your comments on the most effective interventions.
1: You're exactly right. It's, it, you know, I would say that, um, you know, one of the things that, although the interventional trials have been limited because it's so new, one of the interesting things is that we actually have a lot of epidemiological data um, because we can actually take samples which have been biobanked for the last 40, 50 years.
0: Oh, good point.
1: And, and then yeah. look at, at how these factors are affecting. And and so, you know, one of the things you mentioned, insulin resistance, and or I should say, uh, you know, insulin sensitivity, vice versa, yeah, um, yeah, Insulin yeah. sensitivity is, is definitely a big factor there um, as 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 we know. And so I would absolutely agree with that. I would also say, you know, we actually do have one interventional trial on the vitamin D, which is that, um, in, in, in just 16 weeks, over the course of 16 weeks, uh, uh, there was an average of of right around 1.8 years of reduction from overweight individuals who are taking 4000 IU per day of vitamin D. And and again, whenever we're talking about multi year age reductions, that's hard to do, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, 1.8. And and so again, those patients were, were definitely a a particular subset. So I wouldn't say we see that change for everyone. um, But but vitamin D definitely seems to be positive. Um, You know, with exercise, exercise is actually a very interesting one. Um, And actually, a lot of the things that we see are very similar to what we see with exercise where, you know, some is great, but too much can actually be a negative thing, um, where Mm -hmm. we, we sort of see Uh, you know, there's definitely a sweet spot. Um, And and we think that's because, you know, particularly in a lot of our professional athletes or Olympians uh, who undergo a lot of of physical activity, we probably see more increased reactive oxygen species, uh, you know, sort of a worse ability to deal with all these constant insults which are happening. Um, And and so we actually see similar things with even like drinking alcohol, for instance, where, you know, one to two drinks of beer or wine per week are actually associated with better ages. Whereas, you know, uh, heavy drinking is is associated with around 2.22 years of, of, of negative age acceleration, or I should say, sort of age acceleration, which is a negative thing. Um, and, and so, um, so, you know, I think that there's a definitely a sweet spot, but, but the one lifestyle thing, which surprised me, um, you know, we can consistently see again and again and again is the impact of stress and stress management. Um, you know, I, I've never been a huge one for mindfulness or meditation because I always sort of ask myself as I'm sitting there, am I doing this right? Is this, am I accomplishing what I intended? And, and, and what we see now is that the people who, who do mindfulness, who do meditation, who have stress reduction strategies in their life, tend to age at a much slower rate. And so um, that was one of the biggest and most surprising things for me um, as, as someone who's not always a, attributed um, you know, too much of a, of a medical, uh, uh, I would say, um, impact of, of stress. It is absolutely one of the things that we see move the needle in the biggest way. Okay, good, I just wanna comment on the vitamin D. Uh,
0: I'm not surprised that they, they found that in that study you quoted, but my guess is that <clears throat> you really this is so pervasive cuz i've been studying vitamin d for so many years but but the almost the vast majority of studies published on vitamin d they fail their in their methods miserably because they fail to Actually measure the blood level, and my guess is they did. They did that in the study that you quoted because they probably gave these overweight individuals four thousand units of vitamin D. Well, it, it doesn't matter; they can four thousand or forty thousand. It really the key is that you have to move that uh, vitamin D level into the sixty to eighty nanograms per milliliter sweet spot to activate optimized. Uh, epigenetic regulation of the DNA to, to get the benefit. So, so that, that would, it's a simple thing that people can do. And it, it's really one of the most powerful interventions for health is just to go out and get your blood tested. And you don't have to get a doctor's order. You can get these tests online. You could, it's a little bit painful, but you have to pick, prick your finger and you put about, I don't know, 10, 12 drops of blood on these uh, cardboard blotters and you mail it in the, in, in, in a few weeks, you get your results. So simple to do. And it's so, so powerful. Um, uh, and then I think the other thing that may be on par with that, that we didn't discuss, but you know, there's the, the Harman free radical theory of aging, which is subsequently being modified to the mitochondrial theory, free radical theory of aging, um, I believe is, is appropriate here because they, really it's all about oxidative stress and the generation of free radicals. But we, the huge mistakes were made in applying this to anti aging, is that people were taking massive amounts of antioxidants, which indiscriminately suppressed these free radicals, some of which are highly beneficial. So you need to selectively target them. But ultimately, The reason oxidative stress is such an issue is because you have these damaging molecules that are floating around the body, but if there's no target for them, and this is the key that I only understood just relatively recently, then they're not going to really be that dangerous. So what is the target? The target is unsaturated fatty acids, which get embedded into your biological tissue for years, years. So when you eat sugar, yes, it's not good because it could lead to insulin resistance. We already said that that's an issue, but you can change that insulin resistance in literally days or weeks but to to change the molecules that that are highly susceptible to oxidative stress would take years many years sometimes 5 to 10 years so the 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 um consequence of this is that to reduce the, the most dangerous form of fatty acid, which is an omega-6 fatty acid called linoleic acid, and it's pervasive in our diet. Uh, historically, we've had like one to 2% of our total calorie intake was linoleic acid. Now it's 20, 25%. And I, there's like little to no doubt in my mind, and I could be wrong, but I don't think so, that this is the, one of the primary culprits for the massive increase in epidemics of degenerative diseases that we experience. is this linoleic acid input, which just gets embedded in the cell membranes the the, the, uh, the and are just predisposed to these free radicals that get generated. And this just, just sets off this oxidative uh, cascade that damages all these tissues. So um, to me, the vitamin D optimization and just uh, eliminating almost all linoleic acid in your diet, because if you're eating food, you're going to get enough. It, it is essential; your body can't make it, but it's in virtually every food you eat. So the key is You know, no seed oils, no vegetable oils, no chicken, no pork, stay away from sauces in restaurants or salad dressings because it's all loaded with this garbage. And uh, I think that could go a long way. And I'd love to see some studies being published on this because I I think that the results would be outstanding. Unfortunately, it would have to be long-term. You can't, it's not a single intervention like B-cells. You'd have to do it for years before you see the results
1: yeah definitely and, and i should mention that a lot of the epigenetic researchers who were responsible for some of these clocks uh you know one of the 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 i would say big holes and gaps in this research has been comparing how lipidomics affect epigenetics and and so that is a definitely an area that people have targeted as um you know an area that they're they're going to look at in, in the future and and so hopefully we'll be able to uh to know a little bit more about that in, in in as well but even from a dietary perspective i think that the recommendations those those really pragmatic and clear you know recommendations are, are similar to what we see in literature where we see, you know, things like Mediterranean diets, uh, you know, do, do very, very well, um, with, uh, with epigenetic age and, and multiple publications. And so, um, so again, hopefully we'll have an answer here soon.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's good. So I'm, uh, obviously really impressed with your, uh, knowledge base, your commitment, uh, and the quality of the testing that you do. So if anyone's interested in exploring this for themselves, perhaps establishing a baseline, because it is good to have a baseline. Uh, normally it's going to, you know, the, maybe you can comment on this as the rate of change that you'd expect, at least what you've seen outside of the interventions of B cell and plasmapheresis, uh, relatively slow, but it is good to have a baseline because at some point you might have access to B cells or plasmapheresis or some of these other things like maybe you haven't looked at DNA optimization. My guess is that many people, if they have a suboptimal vitamin D levels, they can get maybe a two, maybe even a three year increase by changing a vitamin D level that's been chronically low, like 20 or 25 and get it up to 60, that's going to be a big difference in your life. So, so why don't you comment on those and then give us information on how someone could uh, get this test done for themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This, this test is available direct to consumers. So consumers can go on our website at, at TrueDiagnostic.com to order this. And it's sort of the, the true age complete collection, which it reports out on all of these different metrics, everything from telomere length to your immune cell subsets, to your intrinsic age or your, your immune age. Um, uh, and, and, so we can report out on all of those things, including your instantaneous rate of aging. And, and if there's really one thing I would, I would recommend optimizing to it is probably that rate of aging, because that changes a little bit more quickly than some of these other metrics. Um, and, and if you can make sure that that stays lower over time, we know it directly uh, relates to better health span where we see more, you know, less sarcopenia, more muscle mass. Um, you know, we see as this rate of aging increases, we also see cognitive decline and IQ loss changes. We see facial aging. And so um, if you really want to optimize, I would, I definitely highly recommend that, that rate of aging as well. Um, and, and if you ever have any other questions or would like any more data, I would uh, feel free to reach out to us at, at True Diagnostic, our contact information is on that website i happy to always point you in the right direction of, of, some research. And if there's any researchers out there looking to, uh, um, to, to see how maybe their product or, um, you know, their, uh, um, you know, did certain types of things, for instance, like linoleic acid might affect aging. We'd be happy to collaborate. And so feel free to reach out to us and we'd love to talk more.
0: Okay. And what's the name of the site again? True diagnostics.com.
1: Yeah. yeah. T R U diagnostic.com. Um, Diagnostic. And, okay. Uh, not that plural. Diagnostic. Plural. Correct. Okay.
0: Good. Yeah, and then all the information will be there so it's a great tool uh i'm probably going to be using it for many many years so <laughs> i'm so glad that we connected and uh you were a lot, uh, able to share the your insights on this i believe it is a really important thing especially the the insights on the damage to aging not surprising and actually i guess you would predict it if you were to make a guess of that COVID has on aging. So I was, but what's surprising is that it actually was potentially hormetically beneficial for younger people, unless you're one of the people who gets the COVID kill shot and uh, you know <laughs> die of myocarditis at the age of 15 or 18 years old, so.
1: Yeah, definitely. And then as we come up with new studies, I mean, we're going to be publishing quite a bit now, uh, you know, coming out with, I think, um, some data on, uh, on COVID, the senolytics, um, you know, things like bariatric surgery, etc. So, so um, hopefully, we'll, you know, we'll be able to talk again and update everyone on, on some of the best ways to reverse that aging process.
0: All right, we we'll look forward to a future update. All right. Thanks so much, Dr. McCullough. All right, thank you.